Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gabia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we watched the 1984 fantasy film The NeverEnding Story, a nostalgic millennial fave. Though not, we should note up top, one of our nostalgic millennial faves. Yeah, neither of us have seen this (laughs) before. This is a first-time watch. Uh, So the film is adapted from the German fantasy novel by the same name. It is about a young boy who becomes obsessed with a book called The NeverEnding Story, which tells the story of a boy named Atreyu and his quest to save the land of Fantasia. So this is a Patreon request from Asante. Thank you, of course, to Asante. Apologies in advance. This is not going to be one of our most positive episodes. (laughs) Because we did not like this movie very much. I think this film benefits a great deal from the loving gaze of childhood nostalgia. I know that this is a ubiquitous film, particularly among Americans and Germans. Watching this as an adult, it did not hold up to the same scrutiny that I think some other 1980s fantasy movies like The Princess Bride definitely seem good. Yeah, I'm sure I've mentioned this on the podcast before in the context of like, other films that fall into this general category. But when I was a freshman in college, this was when Netflix like would send you DVDs if you had a subscription. And so my friends and I would like pick what we were going to rent from Netflix every month. And I believe that one of our friends was like, we have to watch Newsies. And I was like, what is Newsies? Like, I didn't even know that this was a film. And she was like, it's so amazing. It was my favorite when I was a kid. And so I think we made it maybe 20 minutes into Newsies before I was like, I physically cannot watch this anymore. (laughs) Like, what the fuck is going on? And I know that that is a beloved film to many people and, you know, spreads good messages about unions, etc. But like, I just could not process what was happening. And there are lots of movies like that where, like, if you watch it at the right age, it's great. And that's fantastic. But if you didn't see it at the correct time, watching something like that or, like, this movie for the first time as an adult, you're just like, no. (laughs) Which, unfortunately, was the case for us this week. I was puzzled by quite a lot of it because um, pretty much the only thing I was aware of was that the luck dragon which is sort of a long dog muppet and that's like a key part of the imagery from the film and i was aware of that and i was aware of the empress and then watching the film i was like this movie has such a weird structure like it's told in a framing device like the princess bride like they're both based on novels so it's not like the princess bride copied this or vice versa but like the framing device is like oh this boy is grieving the death of his mother and is living with his father who's not a particularly great dad and this kid's getting bullied and it's clearly setting up like a narrative where this child sort of gains the power of imagination and becomes competent and sort of starts to move past the death of his mother and they kind of seed various elements of that theme in the movie including fantasy metaphors for depression in the fantasy land and that sort of thing and they, they kind of don't conclude it and also because of the framing device of him experiencing this story through reading the book I spent the whole movie being like, so when's he going to go into the book? And afterwards I found out that they only adapted half of the novel. So I guess like the part where he goes into Fantasia basically happens in the other half. But watching this, I was like, they hired this child actor who's like credited effectively as the protagonist. And he spends the whole movie just reacting to a book that he's reading. (laughs) Well, and what I found interesting about this movie was the way it's clearly interacting with all of these other sort of like major fantasy texts from the time, both like book and film. And as you say, it's hard to know 
what was influenced by what. The Princess Bride was also a novel that came out definitely before this, and I have no idea whether uh, Michael Enda, the writer of this novel, would have read that or not. I mean, the impression I get is that the writer did not really read other children's literature, really. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. But Labyrinth also definitely is like seems connected to this. I have no sense of like how all these things were interacting with each other, but even if there's not like direct influence happening, it's all just like sort of in the cultural water at the same time, right? But with The Princess Bride in particular, and like those three things I just mentioned, all have these framing devices of like the real world and then the fantasy world. And The Princess Bride, it's just like a story that's being told. And then this and Labyrinth, there's like the idea that you could sort of enter this in some way is like the child who's in the real world. And then there's like actually is a real like fantastic space that can be entered. But in both this and The Princess Bride, you keep cutting back to like the frame device of like a book being read. But in The Princess Bride, you have like America's most beloved man, Peter Falk, reading it to his grandson and sort of providing commentary. Yeah. And it's very sort of genre savvy. And the framing device is like the the child is just there as like the audience. Whereas in this, you've got this thing where it keeps feeling like the child ought to be going into the book and then he doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. And nothing happens in those scenes, really. So you just have this child actor who is like, none of the child actors in this movie are very good. They were children. It's fine. But like, they're not giving great performances, right? And so you just have this kid who is being given the task of just like reacting to nothing. And then we cut back to the main story. And you just feel like, why am I, why am I watching this child like read? It just doesn't make any sense. And just feels annoying, but then also the main plot is not very engaging. So it's kind of like, well, I guess we'll just go back to that then. Like, it's it's unfortunate. The whole thing is just poorly structured. I mean, it was very interesting afterwards for us both to start reading interviews with the people around this and the various inevitable oral histories that have been done, because obviously this is a very beloved film. And just like reading about both the director and the original novelist, uh, Morgan, you found some info about Michael Ender, the novelist. He sounds like quite a character. (laughs) Yes. Let's start there. So he will be a figure who's probably less known to Americans unless like listeners actually read this book. Wolfgang Peterson, the director who will also talk about, had a long career of making kind of like popular American movies. So he's not someone I know a ton about, but I definitely know his name. I'd never yeah, heard he's of He's known for directing before. Das Boot, which he d- did directly before this and was a big hit as like a serious war drama. And then he was like, I want to make something that's suitable for my 10 year old son. An admirable goal. But the author of the book, Michael Enda, this was really like the main thing he's known for. And it was a massive phenomenon in Germany. Huge, huge, huge. There was an interview with him from around when the time when this movie came out in People magazine that says... In 1979, this book soared to number one on that country's bestseller list. Within a couple of months, two other of his books that I seems like he'd written before rose to the second and third spots, respectively. And I think Never Ending Story was at the top of the charts there for, like, years. And I also was looking up the book, the New York Times archive, just to see if there were any interviews. And when I looked up articles, like, the bestseller lists from around when the movie came out kept popping up like many of them so clearly it was on all of those yeah i mean it also clearly had some kind of following among adult hippies yes so apparently which like 
you would not get this from the movie because it is just not coherent enough to convey like a strong theme theme any kind of theme (laughs) (laughs) but another quote from this people article is that although enda who considers himself apolitical didn't intend it the book with its utopian message became the bible of anti-nuclear activists so i tried to find more information about it as this sort of like text of the like anti-nuclear movement i couldn't really find very much but i found that really fascinating in terms of it being this sort of cultural touchstone in the like culture war stuff of the 80s and obviously the 80s i mean it came out in 79 in germany but this is a period of like reactionary political movements in america and europe i'm not sure specifically about the german government at that time but i'm sure that's part of what made it appealing in america since this was like the reagan era right (laughs) but if you look at like actual quotes from this man He's just, he's just a fucking weirdo. He's just a strange, strange man. So, so he's born in like the 30s, I think. There's one of the interviews he talks about like remembering World War II as a child, which clearly was like a traumatic experience for him, which of course makes sense. He was the child of a surrealist artist and mother was a psych, was a physiotherapist. And there's a quote that says he arrived, he enrolled in an actor school in Munich um, in 1947. And he says, the parents of my first girlfriend paid my tuition. They wanted me to get away from her. What? Like, what? And at the time of the movie coming out, he was 54 and he'd been married for 20 years. And he and his wife, who is a former actress named Ingeborg Hoffman, share their seven room house in the hills of outside Rome with five cats, two dogs and five turtles. And I think this is the same interview where he's like talking about how he just cheats on his wife and is sharing yeah. all these very dark philosophical statements. And I'm like, this really does feel like someone just wrote a stereotypical portrayal of a mid 20th century German artist. <laughs> yeah. So there was so it's a people interview and then like an interview from Playboy that's like been translated by a random person on the internet. And at first I was like, is this legit? And then I read the people interview and was like, oh no, it's, it's definitely the same man. And he's like talking about climate change and how Florida is going to be underwater someday and like population control. And this is from 1983. And I was like, oh, you were ahead of your time, but also you seem very depressed. Like just, <laughs> just not in a good space at all. One more quote from that interview, or the interviewer asks, are you pleased with your success? And he says, well, it is also a burden. I get 20 letters a day today. It completely sucks. This is beyond human scale. <laughs> it's just as well this man died before the internet. <laughs> oh my god. Just big time. Yeah. So anyway, he originally agreed to sort of work with, I think, Wolfgang Peterson and the creative team making this movie. And, and we should add, this was a German production. Wolfgang Peterson is German and it was yes. filmed in Germany. So it was like, at this point, the most expensive film ever made in Germany at $25 million. Yeah. So Das Boot had been this huge breakout success in America. Wolfgang Peterson had worked in the German film industry throughout the 70s. He'd made a couple features, I believe, but primarily he'd been working in television. He'd made several TV movies. He'd worked on some TV shows. But again, Das Boot which got nominated for the Foreign Language Film Oscar and I think a couple other Academy Awards, was at that time, I think, the highest grossing foreign language film in America. Like, it was just a huge, huge deal. Um, And so then, of course, the opportunities exist to make a film in English, which he then did. And so 
Enda says that he originally like trusted Peterson and the creative team and he really wanted them to make a good movie and was excited about the adaptation. And then he says that Peterson like wrote a new script in secret and didn't show it to him. And that he found out about this like right before shooting and they got embroiled in this lawsuit, which he needless to say lost because the, you know, people who get their books adapted really have no power over anything unless they have a very good contract. And part of the reason he was giving this interview to people and was talking about this publicly was that he was just like, I hate this movie so much. It's garbage. They've changed everything. This isn't my vision, etc., etc. And he died like 20 years ago, I think. So all of these kind of retrospective pieces now, Wolfgang Peterson's just like, well, you know... It's just, it's just what happens when you adapt a film is that the author just can't understand that it's going to have to be a different thing. And like, he was such a genius, but, and he doesn't get to have his say because he's no longer alive. I have to say, like, looking at these, it's like, on the one hand, I cannot imagine Michael Ender ever being happy with any kind of remotely accessible film for children, or indeed any film. However, Wolfgang Peterson seems like a dick, so. Yeah, and his movie sucks. So it really was not a great marriage of creative minds here. It seems very plausible that he was kind of secretly just like, this guy's impossible. I'm just going to write my own screenplay and then we're going to do it. His quote about this in, there's a profile of him in 84 in the New York Times. I'm a film director. I'm a creative artist, he says emphatically. I have to make changes. I did that with Das Boot, which was also an adaptation, and the author of that was also not happy (laughs) with how the movie came out. I did it here, and I will do it in the future. He says that he can understand the author's disappointment, but a a direct translation to the screen doesn't work. It's a boring thing. Again, you made a boring movie. So perhaps another solution would have worked. So how do you want to tackle... What actually happens in this film? Okay, so I'm guessing most of our audience have not recently watched this film. So I will I will either <laughs> tell you what happens or refresh your memory. Um, as we said, the framing device is this young boy who's bullied at school and escapes into reading this fantasy novel that he finds at a mysterious bookshop. So the whole story takes place while he's sitting in this uh, weird, creepy attic full of skeletons and props that is inexplicably in his urban American high school. <laughs> Our middle school. But um, yeah, the story begins with we find out that there's this spiritual plague thing called the nothing, which is spreading rapidly across the land of Fantasia. And we're introduced to this concept at the same time as we're introduced to various kind of fantasy characters, you know, little gremlins and so forth, <laughs> looking sort of less impressive than some of the more professional Muppets we see in other 1980s fantasy films. And they are on their way to meet with the childlike empress, where there's going to be a big diplomatic meeting where they discuss how to defeat the nothing. And we follow the story to this beautiful palace, which is on top of this tower thing, which is a ubiquitous style of design that we see in all of these 1970s and 80s children's fantasy stories, where there's a sort of pillar of light and then a castle thingy, you know, very reminiscent of He-Man and so forth. And there's lots of cool prosthetics and stuff there going for this big meeting. And this guy explains that actually the childlike empress is dying and the only person they can think of who has like the skills to defeat the nothing is this hero named Atreyu. And when Atreyu shows up, 
he is a 12 year old boy played by this child actor named Noah Hathaway and they've kind of brought some sort of Native American imagery into that but they don't really play it particularly strongly but it's clearly kind of an element of his character not a Native American actor obviously Um, (laughs) but um, then he has to like embark on this quest to defeat the nothing but because the the structure is like really incoherent (laughs) it kind of doesn't make any sense and it's quite hard to grasp on to any sort of drive in the quest because the character doesn't really grow like there's this really iconic scene towards the beginning which even though I didn't know anything about the movie I could tell was like a scene that must have stuck in children's minds because it involves Atreyu going into this swamp which is sort of I guess meant to be thematically tying in with the depression and grief experienced by the narrator child and he's trying to pull his horse through the swamp and the horse drowns on screen Uh, very upsetting for all the children who watch this apparently as you would expect. I was like, my God, they're killing off the horse. But it's also a very (laughs) weird thing to get in the first third of the film because I'm like, I have not had enough time to bond emotionally with this horse, you know? It's like, feels like the horse should die later, but there we go. And then he kind of continues on this quest and meets some more little gremlin guys and does a couple of challenges. But the challenges are quite poorly executed. Like he, there's like a challenge of will where he has to prove that he has self-confidence and I was like okay this is gonna tie into the idea of the narrator child gaining self-confidence and once again that like doesn't happen and Atreyu just kind of goes forward and the film kind of culminates in Atreyu meeting up with the childlike empress who has not appeared in the film up until now which is bizarre because she's kind of introduced as a central figure and also there's no other girls in this movie so I was like there's really ought to be more roles for girls and she's like, oh, well, the only way for us to save Fantasia from the nothing is to... Uh, she's like, oh, Fantasia actually only exists in the minds of humans. And because kids these days have no imagination, that's the reason why the nothing is coming to destroy us. And I was like, okay, right, a lot of existential stuff happening here. And then she's like, if a human can give me a new name, then the world will be saved. And at this point, I was just like what is what is any of this at all and this means that the key kind of internal struggle for this little boy who's the framing device kid bastian is that he has to just give this girl a name and acknowledge that the book he's reading is actually real which doesn't seem like any kind of challenge because they've only barely set up the introductory idea that his father wants him to sort of crush his artistic spirit and be more more serious so i'm like just give her a name and then when she does, he does give her a name. He yells it at the same time as there's like a really loud sound effect. So you can't hear what name he says. Apparently he names her Moonchild. And that like saves Fantasia. And kind of the idea at the end of the film is that he has reformed the fairy tale world in its original state that hasn't been sort of destroyed by the nothing. And that's the happy ending. I forgot one of the key characters, which is, of course, the luck dragon, the big Muppet guy, has been in this throughout. And the final scene is the luck dragon comes into the real world and, you know, the kid, Bastion, gets to fly through the streets of whichever American city it is and attack his childhood bullies on the back of a dragon. And I was just like, this does actually seem like a story that I can imagine an eight-year-old telling me and sort of freewheeling what's going to happen next. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is very incoherent. It's very slow. The first big scene in Fantasia is with these, like, random 
like Muppet type characters. Yeah, there's like some goblins and there's a big troll who's pushing along a kind of lawnmower. And I was like, why does he have a lawnmower? They do not clarify. And this goes on for like five plus minutes and nothing happens. Yeah, I was was like, like, oh, these are going to be the supporting cast in this kind of uh, yellow brick road narrative. And it's like, they are not. They vanish from the story. (laughs) And again, watching it, you're like, okay, so clearly these are characters who in the book have some kind of real significance. Or like this scene is something they really wanted to preserve from the book or something. But there's no sense of like narrative structure. (laughs) And look. I'm fine with some experimenting with narrative structure, though perhaps not so much in a children's film. Like, that seems like a space where you want to kind of stick to what works. But the thing is, at the same time, like, the reason why we are discussing this is because someone clearly loved this movie as much as a chi- enough as a child to want us to talk about it, but they're not alone, because people fucking love yeah. this film. Like, so I'm so aware of this film just as a cultural touchstone. So, like, even though the story doesn't make sense, and I think if people watch it as adults, they're gonna find it less enjoyable than re-watching The Princess Bride, which, as we said, is a good movie. There's loads of stuff in here where you can kind of understand why kids love it, because there is nothing more satisfying than the concept of being able to fly around on a cool dragon. And the crucial element of this film is that the dragon is also cuddly. So it's like an adorable dragon. Yes, true. And, you know, there was horse riding. So, like, people can kind of latch on to stuff. And also, apparently, loads of kids were completely obsessed with all these child actors, which we'll discuss in a minute. But, yeah, it's kind of interesting to see how this has lingered on in the public mindset alongside other films that came out at the same time and are, critically speaking, much better, like Labyrinth. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I definitely remember people talking about this when I was a kid. Maybe not like a little, little kid, but like I for sure remember people. I mean, we are a little too old, but like it definitely had a long shelf life on VHS. Yeah. I feel like probably middle school was around the time when I had friends who would be like, oh, the NeverEnding Story is so great. And I feel like the book also was kind of floating around because it was something that I kind of knew... Like, I should investigate because people told me it was, like, this big thing. And I think specifically the thing that people highlighted about it or that was, like, appealing to people I was friends with as a child was the book element. To children who were really bookish, the idea of, like, you can go inside a book or that, like, books have this incredibly important role in the world or, like, value... I think was very appealing. Yeah, I was like, this is clearly a very literal story about like the magic of being at that specific age where you can disappear into the book. I did yeah. also note that like in the original book, it seems like a key element of why this kid is so unpopular is that he is fat. And of course, yes. Hollywood, and obviously this is a German film, but Hollywood cannot stand to have a fat protagonist nope. in a film. So that does not happen here. And it's like, great. Okay, well, yeah, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> So it's just, ugh. I also feel like part of what's inaccessible about it to like an adult viewer is that Atreyu is just like nothing. Like he's just a vacant nothing of a character. There's no... I can really understand why kids found him cool because like he is conceptually very cool, but the actor isn't really given much of an opportunity to perform because he's just yelling every line. Yeah. Um, which made it kind of it, it, it was very interesting to just look at all these 
oral history interviews with these actors and the director and how they're talking about this film like it's this very impressive kind of artistic work and also the fact that like they went through so many auditions to find these child actors and I do not want to like insult the performance of these actors because it's like they're kids and also the director gave them whatever job it was and they were working with some quite weird material but it's like the idea of like going through like tens of thousands of kids to find someone who can like (laughs) yell the dialogue I mean, I feel comfortable saying that, like, he's not good in this movie. It's fine. He was a child. I don't feel like it's his, like, fault. The director is responsible. I mean, the way that Wolfgang Peterson talks about these kids is hilarious. We will put links in the show notes to the main oral history is in Entertainment Weekly. It's very good. And Wolfgang Peterson just makes it really clear that he liked two of the kids and didn't like the other kid. So oh my god, it's so uncomfortable. He's like, oh, I really liked Barrett Oliver. He's like, oh, as kids and actors, the two were just different from each other. Barrett Oliver was always ha- hanging and holding onto my hand. He was so sweet. And um, the director also got on really well with Tammy Stronach, who played the childlike empress. And it seems like she also really thought that he gave her a lot as a director as well. Whereas... He kind of talks very negatively about Noah Hathaway, who played Atreyu. Noah Hathaway himself has spoken about the extensive process to audition for this movie, because like it went through two different directors and he did like seven auditions or something. And because he was a really good physical performer, they were like, you're perfect for this. You've got loads of enthusiasm. You've got kind of the right physicality for this. Cool. But also Noah Hathaway says that Wolfgang Peterson basically endangered his life while they were filming. He broke part of his back apparently and had to be in traction prior to filming during like training for stunts. And he said also that like the horses got better treatment than him because the horses had to do these really difficult underwater fake drowning stunts. But he was like not particularly safe. But then also Wolfgang Peterson said, I didn't care for Noah Hathaway so much because he had an attitude. But it was an attitude that you could tell was there by his parents. They were making so many demands and were essentially trying to blackmail the production. And I was like, that is not something you would hear a director say about a child actor today, sir. (laughs) Well, I mean, he said it quite recently. It's just that he's now like 80 years old. And yeah, clearly doesn't give a shit. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, just... Not good. He does not seem like a very pleasant person to me. And, like, that kid is in almost every frame of this movie. He's in a lot of the film. Yeah. I mean, it made him into a teen idol, apparently, especially in Europe. Like, people in the 80s, he had loads of kids that were around his age who were just obsessed with Atreyu for very understandable reasons. And, like, I read a couple of interviews with him where he's had a really varied career. Like, he's not become, like, a particularly successful actor, but he's had acting roles here and there and he's also was a dancer and he's done a bunch of martial arts so he was like a dance instructor and he also was a tattoo artist and said that while he was a tattoo artist he often found himself like tattooing the symbol of like the amulet he wears in the movie because it became like so popular and when the amulet came up in the movie i was like i've seen that damn amulet i've seen that like on toys and stuff i obviously no idea what it was because it's kind of a generic sort of fake celtic knot snake thing but he like became this teen celebrity and is kind of still on the convention circuit whereas the kid who played Bastian the narrator retired from child actordom after a few other films and became an expert in a very specific type of 19th century photography which love that for him great ending great and the girl who played the childlike empress um her parents were like you're not doing any more movie roles because they were fucking inundated by creeps 
So, like, obviously they all had fans calling their houses, but it seems like she was kind of targeted by pedophiles. Like, people were, like, trying to propose marriage to her and stuff because she was 11. And I was like, Jesus Christ. Well, she's made up like an adult in the movie. Yeah, I noticed that. In a way that. that I found creepy. Because afterwards I was sort of like, oh, wow, why, why did she get all this attention? She's only in the film for five minutes. And I was like, okay, she's wearing, like, adult beauty pageant makeup and she's, like, posed vulnerably in a bed. Yeah. But also at the same time, pretty much every girl who's like aged at that sort of like 11 year old age in movies ends up with these creeps pursuing them as we've seen before it's yeah it's just very depressing to think about obviously it's not like that yes they persist regardless but i definitely thought as soon as she showed up on screen i was like no i don't like this i mean i also thought there's a comment in one of the interviews where wolfgang peterson says of noah hathaway the atreyu actor He's like, he was just such a handsome boy or like such a good looking boy. And I was like, okay, like, I mean, he's cute. Like, but like, and he's definitely shot like a kind of like adult hero of a movie in a way where like, he's a kid, but it, there's just something about it that was a little bit like, ugh. but it completely, it, it's, it's like more obvious with, with her. And she's only in the movie for five minutes, of course, and good for her parents. for yeah. uh, And it seems like she's had like a chill life. None of these are like tragic stories. She pivoted into dancing and has done some sort of more, you know, offbeat performance work and stuff. So she is like, she is like a creative artist, like a working performance artist of various types. I do want to mention again, which you you touched on in your plot summary the fact that Atreyu is like <laughs> from like the plains people which I just found like why I don't know why Michael had to decided to do this there's like a slightly different phraseology in the book I think um I mean it's gesturing at the same thing but like he's from like the grassy plain and has green skin and it made it more explicit in the movie but there was Definitely in like the mid 20th century and still at this time in East Germany in particularly, which I do not believe is the part of Germany that Michael Endo was from, but a real fixation, I think it could probably go so far as to like fetishization of like American Indian iconography from Hollywood, right? I think they made movies themselves about the kind of like cowboy and Indian stuff. So it's not surprising to see this show up there, but also just why like it's so annoying and especially watching it you know 40 years later it sticks out like such a sore thumb because there's nothing in the film that has anything to do with with anything it's just like thrown in yeah because like the the setting like most of these sort of fantasy films are set in the sort of generic medieval european fantasy setting but this one actually isn't this is more in the He-Man zone, where it's just like kind of a neutral landscape of clearly filmed like in a soundstage with trees and stuff, and then weird fantasy creatures. It doesn't feel like it's particularly attached to any place. And then you have this one element, which is, and you can they kind of introduce it with Bastian, the narrator, reading about this kid's description, and then like he sees a picture of like a Native American warrior chasing a buffalo and you kind of get the impression that he's like envisioning it via that image he already knows and recognizes. But whichever way you throw it, it's like, what? Right. It's completely unnecessary. And it doesn't have anything to do with the plot. It's just so that 
you then have this kid wearing this like stereotypical idea of like a Native American outfit, right? And then he's like riding a horse. But I was really irked by that. And then also in terms of sort of influences or connections to other things that were going on in that time on an unrelated note, I was really glad that we did David Lynch's Dune movie before (laughs) watching this because that felt so connected to this film also. Yeah, I also thought of Dune. Uh Again, I have no conception of like influence or whatever. I mean, they literally came out in the same year. They both came out in 1984. Oh, yeah. I I meant more in terms of the books. Like, obviously, Dune yeah. predates this novel. I mean, yeah. I think totally they'll be very different. Dune has an extremely elaborate, complicated mythos and is for adults, whereas this is kind of a children's book with morals. Yes. Although I suspect that the world building of the book is quite elaborate because I think it's pretty long. But it was interesting to see the sort of manifestation in two different movies of the kind of like chosen one narrative at this time, which of course is not a trope that has gone anywhere. It remains extremely popular. Yeah. But they both share this idea of introducing this really classic chosen one narrative and basically flubbing it which is especially intriguing in the context of Star Wars being in absolutely everyone's minds at this point. And Star Wars has like a perfectly drawn chosen one narrative. (laughs) Right. And that movie or those movies, the mythos and the character work in those films is so carefully constructed. Obviously then like George Lucas really goes too far when he continues to make movies in that universe. But in the original ones, it all just makes so much sense and even that you do have that central character who's fitting into this trope that is kind of tedious it doesn't feel overwhelming or boring because the supporting characters are so interesting right whereas in both these cases there's not any like explanation given for why these people are special or deserving of these powers like there's a little speech that a assistant to the queen or whatever gives the beginning of this movie and it's just like we just have to have a treyu and like he has to go find the thing and then like this kid shows up and they're all like (gasps) and there's no like (laughs) again like i get why if you're a kid there's a reason that that trope persists because we all just want to be special and there's an elemental power to that story like it sucks you in at that age But it's so unfounded on, like, anything (laughs) in both these cases. I know the Dune books are more elaborate, but in the movie anyway. They're just like, okay, here we are. Here you go. One size fits all. Like, you know. I mean, it definitely does illustrate that you can actually make a better film by copying the chart from the hero with a thousand faces, basically, point for point. Totally, yeah. Just before we started recording, I was kind of making a little list of all the 1980s fantasy films that I've seen. And I realized the one this reminds me of most apart from Dune is this film called Krull, which is definitely in the B list, but like it came out in the mid eighties, just like The Princess Bride and Willow and Legend and Labyrinth and The Dark Crystal and Conan the Barbarian. And Krull is a film which, as far as I recall, has a very similar sort of castle to this one, like so many of these films. And is about this prince guy who has to save the planet Krull 
by rescuing this princess from this fortress thing. So very generic concept. And it has kind of similar practical effects to this. And the hero's journey arc makes very little sense. And it's also very directly trying to crib off the aesthetic of Star Wars while still being a historical fantasy film, which is very funny and was in the end a colossal box office bomb, I believe. But um, it definitely kind of explains, I think, the reasoning behind something that we discussed at length in our Lord of the Rings episodes, which is the fact that modern Hollywood doesn't think it's possible to make fantasy films. Because <laughs> there was this period in the 80s where loads of fantasy films were getting made. And a lot of them were kind of mid to low budget. A lot of them were aimed at kids. They were very silly. And a lot of them didn't really make sense. And I think that kind of imagery stuck in the minds of everyone, including Hollywood executives. And now there's this idea that you can only make a fantasy film if it is based around war and is extremely expensive. And as we said, Lord of the Rings is a masterpiece and those films are incredibly beautiful, like emotionally and artistically, and they're not actually just a war story. But it, it does seem like it had kind of a persistent impact on the Hollywood attitude to fantasy versus sci-fi, where you can see loads of weird sci-fi films getting made at every point in the kind of budget scale. Yes, totally. And I also think that probably something that worked with this movie, which is also part of what has persistently made Lord of the Rings successful sort of over the past couple of decades, loath though I am to compare these <laughs> these two things. Um, someone was pointing this out on Twitter the other day. I apologize. I don't remember who it was, but I think we made this point on those episodes too. It's just like the unbelievable sincerity of those films, right? Which is yeah. also there in Tolkien's text. They take themselves seriously in like a positive sense. Like there's no ironic detachment, which of course all the Marvel films have to have this kind of sense of like, don't worry. We know. We'll, like, put some jokes in to make sure that, like, there's there's no real emotion here. And obviously the Lord of the Rings movies have jokes, too. But they're incredibly emotionally sincere. And, like, the characters have very sincere relationships, which between men in particular is, like, very unusual, which is what this Twitter thread was commenting on. And I obviously do not think that this film has anything near the, like, emotional coherence or effect of the Lord of the Rings. But, like, it's not ironic. It takes itself very seriously, sometimes in a way that I found a bit silly. But if you're a kid watching, it totally makes sense that you would get like swept up. Yeah, I agree. And they very sincerely kill off the horse. Right. <laughs> I bet the horse is like 50% responsible for the yeah. emotional if you can have investment a of children. Tragic moment, it really yeah. embeds stuff in the childhood psyche. Mm -hmm. But yeah, apologies to this episode's sponsor, Asante, for us not having a very positive view of this film. But thank you very <laughs> much for requesting this as ever. <laughs> and it was interesting to like finally find out what everyone is talking about in terms of the never-ending story. Yes, always good to fill in cultural gaps. And honestly, reading all of the stuff about the production... Fascinating. ...was wild, yeah. <laughs> Worth the price of admission. And next week, we're doing another slightly random choice, which is the musical The Music Man, which is about a con artist who poses as a boys band organizer and goes to a small Midwestern town and persuades the townsfolk to part with their hard-earned cash to pay for all of their children to join a band. 
like a brass band, traditional marching band. Very funny concept. It's based on a Broadway musical, entertaining and extremely old school and um, has a great song which went viral via someone's uh, one person lip sync, <laughs> which I will link to on Twitter. But um, that is kind of how I found out about this movie because I was like, oh, there's this great patter song that this girl did a bizarre lip sync to. And then I watched the film and was like, great film. <laughs> Yeah, we wanted to do an old school musical because uh, we can't do In the Heights at the moment, sadly, because of the UK's COVID situation. But musicals are on the brain currently. So doing a, a classic from the 50s, which was the high point of the genre, seemed seemed good. And I haven't seen this one, so I'm very excited to do so. Uh, Hugh Jackman was supposed to do a big Broadway run of this right before everything shut down. And I believe that is still slated. Yeah, this would be an ideal Hugh Jackman role. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure tickets for that are going to be like a gajillion dollars a piece. So I doubt that I will be personally experiencing it. But um, it does seem it does seem ideally suited to him. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you would like to support us on Patreon and perhaps request a film of your choice for us to discuss, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on YouTube at Behind the Scenes, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.